Hey, dear listeners, I really don't have the right words to describe today's guest. Funny, talented, brilliant, unique. Maybe I just can't find enough words. Personally, I find Melissa McCarthy so inspiring. I've actually been trying to get her on the podcast for years, and I am so grateful that she was able to make this work. Later in the episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jen Gunter, who is an OBGYN, pain medicine physician, and advocate for women's health. Dr. Jen is the author of The Vagina Bible, which I highly recommend, and The Menopause Manifesto, which I just pre-ordered and might need soon. (laughs) After 40 years of not quite knowing how my body works, Dr. Jen was able to solve a lot of mysteries in one conversation. As always, thank you for your comments, your questions, and your stories. It means a lot to hear from you. Please reach out through our website at unqualified.com. And now, here's Melissa. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Melissa, hi! Oh, my heart has been pounding. I wanted to tell you that five years ago, I started this podcast in the hopes that this day would happen. (laughs) I cannot... Thank you enough oh my for God. doing this. You're crazy. I know that you have like very little time off and it's just so sweet that you're spending it with me. Oh my God, this is so fun. You're in Australia right now. Yeah, we're in Byron Bay, Australia. Oh, it's beautiful. I had never been here. It is incredibly beautiful. We feel, I mean, every day we're like, I can't believe we're here. It's COVID free. And we've been here for like five months and we're going to stay another six months until, you know, the U.S. can kind of right itself. But we can work here because there's no COVID, but also people are still really safe. They're very responsible for a place that has no COVID at the moment. Like it's still like you don't barge into a store, you wait, you don't have too many people in it, you sanitize your hands, it's social distancing. They also trace everyone. Like if you go to the grocery store, you click your phone and you log in. Wow. My kids are in school. They've made friends. That's amazing. I know. Sometimes I feel guilty talking about it. We're so grateful. But yeah, it just feels like we're on a completely different planet. Tell us two minor things that delight you about Australia and two minor things that annoy you. I like how hardy Australians are. Like men and women. If there's a bug or a spider or a snake, like someone's just like, oh, it's just a python. It's all right. Like, it's perfectly fine. I'm like, there's an eight-foot python hanging over our head. And they're like, meh. So they're so kind of hearty in that way. And I love the weird saying, how you going? They're like really chatty. So it's always like, when they say, how you going? It's actually like, this could go into a 10-minute conversation and I'm just buying like a newspaper. They actually want to sit and talk and chat. And I find that super endearing. I love that. And then I could do without the, uh, everything here can kill you. Like the spiders are the size of my face. There's snakes everywhere. There's some kind of horned toad or something that they're like, oh God, don't touch it. Like it's outer skin will kill you. Like the cane toad, is that right? Cane toad, yeah, that's what it is. The cane toad, yeah. the huntsman spiders, they can get to like a dinner plate size. It's just everything. What about the box jellyfish? <laughs> Have you heard about those? I'm, no, no. Apparently they're like these invisible Eight foot long, oh, Jesus. slender box jellyfish that give you a heart attack in like three <laughs> minutes. Well, when I told my dad I was coming here, and he still, every time I talk to him, he's like, You stay away from those saltwater crocs. And I'm like, Dad, <laughs> 
I thought he was like making it up. And I'm like, there's no saltwater crocs. And he's like, I've seen documentaries on it. Stay away from the saltwater crocs. He's like, check your pool, check the ocean. He goes, don't go in the ocean. Don't let the kids in the ocean. And then it turns out it is totally a real thing here. And I didn't know, but I don't think it's anywhere around us. But like every day when I talk to my dad, that's the main warning. He's like, just stay away from those saltwater crocs as if they're everywhere. (laughs) I'm like, they're not inside the house, dad. He's like, you don't know. You don't know. I love that. He's protective. You know, he's sweet. Maybe he's projecting his like own personal worst way to die. (laughs) Or favorite. Maybe that's the way he should go. Maybe. (laughs) Melissa, what words would you use to describe Plainfield, Illinois? I can give a good and a bad. I would say limited and charming at the same time. It's bigger than it was when I grew up. When I grew up, it was such a rural, small farm town that I felt trapped and limited. But when I look back on what it was, I feel like I did appreciate the charm of it. Were you in high school itching to leave? Yes, all I talked about, we went out in downtown Chicago, much to my parents' horror. They're like, we moved out to a farm to keep you out of the city and you were like were a magnet for it. So we'd go to clubs and dance and all I wanted to do is go to New York. So tell us about your first living situation on your own then. I went to school at Southern Illinois University. I didn't want to go there only because I wanted to go to New York. I wanted to go to FIT. I wasn't great with even figuring out like, well, have you applied? Have you done anything that would make you be able to afford it? I wasn't together. I'm such a nerdy preparer now. But at 18, I was just like a jumble of like loose wires. I was creative and I wasn't great with like steps, which now I'm like super nerdy. And I'm like, here's the way to get there. The first place I lived was in a dorm and I was really kind of super punk rock. And I walked in and my roommate was in like a Ramones t-shirt and like black Converse and her hair was like Susie and the Banshees. And I was like, what are the odds? Because I was so afraid I was going to get like a sorority girl that would hate me. And then she's like, oh, no, I'm not going to school here. It's my sister. Oh, no. And I can't remember her last name, but she walked out of the bathroom with a white snake t-shirt, like huge metal hair and acid wash jeans and white like cowboy boots and was like, oh, Christ, look at you. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. I said, also, your sister looks kind of just like me, but you've just made fun of me. So by extension, you're making fun of your sister, too. It wasn't a great relationship. She would never lock the door. And I kept walking in on her and a gentleman caller, let's say. (laughs) And finally, I was like, you don't even lock the door. It's also a twin bed and you have a roommate. It's weird on so many levels. My first roommate in the dorms, her name was Allison. (laughs) And she felt like everything I wasn't. She worked at Nordstrom. (laughs) She was like grew up in a wealthier area of Seattle. She was together. It felt like as a freshman in college, she already had... Things kind of figured out. I remember her wearing suits a lot. I don't know if that's accurate. (laughs) And one morning I was taking a shower in the communal showers and she ripped the shower curtain back and she (gasps) threw this shampoo bottle at me and she was like, you didn't fucking wake me up. I'm late for my test. And meanwhile, like she had this pack of friends on the same floor and I was always on the outs. Anyway, did you have a prearranged thing that you were her alarm clock for some reason? No, (laughs) no. You know what? It felt like I didn't grow up with a sister and I had a hard time adjusting. Like the next year I lived with two girls in an apartment and that was the year I sold my used Honda and backpacked around Australia. (gasps) Oh, you did. Oh, my God. Yeah. And we went through Byron Bay. 
I just did one of those touristy things, you know, where you take a bus to different hostels. Which is so great at that. What were you like, 18, 19? Yeah. Oh it my was God. great. Yeah. It was lonely though. I was really alone and I had so much trouble making friends. It was my first time being out of the country, really. Yeah. And so I felt as an outsider, unable to fit in and then angry because I couldn't navigate those waters very well. But like in terms of having sisters, my other roommates were pretty adjusted to like borrowing my clothes and <laughs> and all of that was like a new world to me. I became really close to one of them. And she was the one I called after I got Scary Movie. I called her and I said, I got this movie and it's a comedy. And she said, oh, Anna, you are not funny. <laughs> and I said, I know. What? I didn't take it as an insult. How did you not know you were funny? You didn't know you were funny and your friend didn't? I find that crazy. Melissa, I don't think I am that funny. <laughs> I think I can make an ass out of myself really well, but I've never done stand-up. After like 20 years, it still surprises me that I'm in comedy. <laughs> I am shocked by that, but I get maybe that's good. You know, I've talked to people that have never seen, like Bill Hader, I remember, I can't remember how it came up, but he was like, oh no, I've never seen anything on SNL I've done. I've never seen anything I've done. And I was like, you're crazy. I said, you should really watch yourself. You're so good. And he's like, I could never, I couldn't stand it. It would probably make me quit the business. But I think there's something about that when someone's really good at something, maybe because, I mean, it's creepier if you, everybody was like, boy, am I amazing? <laughs> then you'd probably be really bad. So maybe it's a good thing you don't know. Well, thank you. Like, I have a hard time watching playback because I'm very suddenly aware of the weird things. It's hard for me to do this Zoom. I have to really <laughs> focus on you. <laughs> I just always realize I do very strange things with my hands. And I think it's better in character, which is why I like all of it so much. But when it's left to my own, like in any kind of photo shoot where I just couldn't be creepier, and I end up doing very bizarre, like I do bear claws sometimes where I just end up in tension and they're like, we don't know what's happening with your hands or if you're arthritic. I'm like, oh no, I just, I didn't know what else to do with them. So I've coiled them. <laughs> you just worked with Regina Hall. Oh my God. Like she's one of the greatest, funniest people I've ever met in my life. Like every single day I was like, oh my God, I'm just crazy about her. I love her so much. Not only is she so brilliant, but she is just an incredible person to be around. Yeah, she's like a dream. And I love that she, after each take, she was always like, okay, whew, where to begin? Uh, Michael Shannon, I didn't buy any of it, not a bit. Yeah. And then she starts backtracking. She goes, let's go through all of your things. And so she's constantly giving notes. But it's like the bit that never isn't funny. And so every take we're like, Regina, and she's like, boy, it was pretty bad, guys. <laughs> it makes me laugh. I know. She's amazing. You know how when you're a part of a movie that's, you know, feels a little rocky. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> like all of the. <laughs> she was my pillar. <laughs> oh, I can see that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Christ. We went through the journey together. Melissa, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? I don't know if I have a place. I don't mean that as a cop-out. I think anywhere, as long as I had my family and my dogs and access to everybody, I think I've become adaptable because we're like carnival people anyway. So it's like, I kind of feel like my home's what I bring with me and the people I bring with me because we work with so many of our friends that even if we have friends coming here now that like help produce with us and all this stuff. So I'm like, I think I've become like officially transient. I agree. I think a lot about the idea of home. And how Los Angeles has never felt like a home and what does. And it is family and my fiance and son and his kids 
But I heard Bob Odenkirk, he came on the podcast a while back and he said that when he went to Ireland, I think about this a lot, how he was overcome for the first time in his life with this sense of home. Really? It like flooded his body. And I think about that and I know how transient we all are and we have to be and how Los Angeles is a place of shift. So I envy that idea. I have to say, like, I love being in L.A. I didn't transition to it very well. It took me like two years to stop just berating it constantly. And finally, someone I was friends with said, if you can't stop shitting on L.A., will you just leave? And I was like, oh, I was like, do I do it that much? And they're like every sentence. If we want to order coffee, you compare it to New York. If we want to go to dinner, you're like, I don't know. I'm going to dinner at six o'clock. I've never had dinner before 930 in my life, like every single thing. And finally, so I feel that's a part of our home and I feel very at ease in Atlanta. I love Paris, but I don't know. Now I'm in Byron Bay and I have to say, I'm just like, I'm staring out at these like rolling green hills and looking at cows. And I'm like, I'm okay here. Completely. Okay. What was the best advice you've ever been given? You know, it's funny. My mom and Ben's mom, they're both like amazing, amazing women. When I started having kids, I remember with the new thing of like Food Network and HG, like all these things that I was like, I guess if I'm a good mom, I'm supposed to not work and I have to grow my own organic apples and make their applesauce. And I'm like, I'm just, I know, and I'm guilty about working and blah, blah, blah. I think I was trying so hard to not destroy my, you know, new child. And both of them separately, which it's interesting because they're very different women, both in great ways. But both were just like, what is the big deal about working? And I was like, well, I, you know, it's like I work a lot. And both of them were like, yes, so did I. So did I, because we had to pay for food and send you to school. What's with the guilt? They're like this guilt about raising your family and what it takes to do so. She's like, they both said at different times within like probably the first three months of me having Vivian, they were like, yeah. I said, did you ever feel bad about working? And they're like, no, we had to put food on the table. Like my dad and my mom worked and Ben's mom and dad both worked. And they were like, this is this new construct that they didn't even get it. They just thought it was the weirdest thing. And they're like, let that go. And like, how great you get to work at something you love doing. Who cares? Great. And I was like, oh yeah, like get rid of the guilt. That was a biggie. I love it that it came from your mom and your mother-in-law. That's incredible. Yeah. I felt so guilty returning to work and feeling like I wasn't spending enough time. You know, the whole thing. Everything. Everything. I know. Yeah. That pressure kind of blindsided me. I wasn't expecting it like those first couple of years. I think I was putting it on myself. I don't remember a ton of people, you know, influencing me, but I don't know where we absorbed this along the way. I think it's like, and this isn't anything against, but watching people on certain shows, it's like I somehow forgot, especially being part of this business. I was like, well, wait, even making that dinner, somebody else cuts everything for her and they're cleaning for her, like everything or him or whatever it is. It's like, just seems so easy that they whip up some amazing dinner. And like, I, I cook a lot, but I was like, <laughs> finally, I started realizing, wait, there's a whole crew and a staff and that's different. And that person probably doesn't go home every night and cook for their family either. And like, and I cook a lot. And I was like, just every once in a while when I feel guilty, I think of them saying that. And I'm just like, wait, I'm doing fine. And I also was like, I remember saying to my mom, you and dad were always there. Like I had that feeling of you were always there. And she's like, I worked every day of your life and your dad worked downtown Chicago and would leave before you were up and got home at like 730 at night. She's like, we weren't always there. And I'm like, but I guess I felt that. She goes, well, then so were your kids. 
that might be the best answer that I've had to that question. <laughs> Do you have a favorite movie that you watch over and over? I love Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. There's such an incredible balance of it's so heartbreaking and then it's so funny at the same time. And I think that's exactly the mess that life is. And one, I just love it. And I think John Candy and Steve Martin too, but John Candy was perfect in it. There was such a gentleness to him. He's like, no, I'm the jackass. I'm making fun of me to make you feel better or I'm making fun of me, not to like rip yourself apart, but he had the perfect, and I think it takes a real technician to be that funny and still be like, no, I'm taking the hit. Even in Splash, when he was like, oh, I'm going out with babes. He was saying stuff that you could take it as like, what an asshole, what a pig. And somehow you were just like, he did the kind of Archie Bunker of it where even when he says crazy stuff, his kindness in his heart lets you know that like, no, he's taking the fall. He's taking the fall and you get to look at him and laugh. And then when he would have his sincere moments, I think that same vulnerability and willingness to be like, I'm going to show you what it is. There's a beauty to him and his work that I loved. I love how you describe him. I'm trying to think of some other examples of people who convey that same sentiment. I, I think you do, Melissa. But you're right. You know, he evokes some uh, like a degree of empathy. It's a hard quality to find. It is. And also like to be silly is sometimes I think so lovely because you don't have to think I'm cool. Like it's not trying for anything more than what it is. There's something pure about it. There's certain people that just have like Sam Richardson is a great one. He's such a funny actor. Yeah. You could give him a list of things that another person saying it would make you cry. And yet somehow he can deliver it and he turns the joke back on himself. And as he's making fun of someone else, he's essentially saying, I'm the idiot because I think this. It's a real magical skill set. You have to fully embrace the idea that with full sincerity, you are kind of a doofus in life. Yeah, yes. And then I think we went through this whole thing, you know, making comedies and you try so hard to just make something to have someone connect with and make them laugh or just hear a little story. And for such a long time, I felt like they were like, if you're making a comedy, it has to be like joke after joke after joke after joke. I just don't agree with that. I think you have to tell a story and within the story, you can be funny and you can break someone's heart and you can be challenging. It's just such a pillar of what it can be. And no one looks back on that movie and goes, how dare they bring up his deceased wife and make me cry? Instead, it was like, what a lovely moment. But I think Ben and I have had a lot of that, you know, you win and you lose to tell a good story about real people. And I always think within that is highs and lows. But I think we're starting to get back away from that. But I remember when we made Tammy, I had like a, I don't know if he's a critic or just a reporter, but he like actually like yelled at me. What? It was very strange. He was like, it looked like a big, you know, studio comedy. And I was like, it was a little movie. It was the first movie we got to do. And then it was like, there was like parts that were upsetting. And I was like, I'm not sure what the problem is. I said, I'm sorry you didn't like the movie. And he goes, I loved it. <laughs> he goes, but you sold it wrong. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. Are you mad at me because you felt for her? And he's like, well, I went in wanting to see a comedy. I'm like, well, we have different values of what comedy is, but it's hard. Like people are so against comedies now. I worry sometimes we need them so much, not meaning for me, meaning from the world, because we're in a shitstorm of a pandemic. And I do think people are just beating them up. And I don't exactly know why. Even when Bridesmaids came out, it's a big thing that people are like, this is going to be awful. I'm like, but it's not out yet. You're just going after. I don't know if it's that it was women or everybody thinks they can do it better. So they just go against it. But I think if we stop making them, everything can't be dark. And I love dark stuff. 
but it can't all be dark. We're living in a tricky, tricky world. And if everything is murderers, killers, war, crime, we're sliding down a slippery slope. But Melissa, I'm really hesitant to bring up a gender idea. Do you think that that's also part of it? I think it's a lot of it. Yeah. It's like, I think we've taken some steps forward, but I think for the most part, there's a lot of male reviewers and, you know, statistically they don't seem to enjoy when a woman isn't being kind of like pleasant and attractive and pleasant to be around. I like characters that are really challenging and walk to their own beat. I mean, those are the people that fascinate me. So completely. Sometimes I think about how Blockbuster did us a fundamental disservice by categorizing. So, you know, our expectation levels are like a menu at McDonald's. Yeah. You have your drama section, your action section. <laughs> but I've never thought about that, the pre-assuming what it is. of Like, you have to fit in this box and it has to be like this. And I'm like, well, I think most people love a story where they're like, I didn't even know that was coming. Like, I had no idea. And comedies are subjective because... I mean, you can tell the same joke or a funny moment. 14 people won't get it. 20 will think it's great. 13 will be offended. 20 weren't listening. It's not the same as like, I walked across the room and I had to pour coffee because I was mad at my husband. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's clean cut. If you do that and don't do anything bizarre, people buy it. If you try to have a weird, funny moment, it's so subjective it's so much more heightened for critiques. You work so hard on them. I just think no one's ever making them in the hopes of like, God, I hope this really screws up some people. <laughs> it's just never, it's never what's going on in anybody's head. And sometimes the, the response is so crazy. But I do think it's, you know, for a long time, like every female character was so, you know, the bullshit of female leads and comedies don't work. I'm always like, no, it just seemed like there was a 10-year time limit where everybody was like, they were perfect. They dressed perfect. They looked perfect. They were pleasant to be around. And I'm like, so what's wrong? If you're not tripping and falling down or saying the wrong thing, it's not very funny. I know. You've given no tools to be funny. And then I think when it kind of started to swing back into like, yeah, you need to have a three-dimensional character that's like, you hate certain things and you love certain things. And then I think it threw people that like, wait a minute, they're not adorable. And I'm like, I never, ever have said what I want in a comedy is like an adorable gal. <laughs> like, I don't know who wants that, but somebody does. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Man, I used to hear when we were pitching something, I thought it was kind of a joke, but the idea of like, well, you know, we're looking for like the kind of girl that guys want to fuck and girls want to be their best friend. Or what? I couldn't believe that was actually said out loud. Ugh, it's insane. Nobody knows that person. Yeah. We hate that person. Yeah, we hate that person. <laughs> I remember somebody when the foreign press kind of you get in that room and they ask, and this guy stood up and said, why are you so grotesque? And I'm like, 
okay, wow, what do you mean by that? And he goes, you know what I mean? Why are you so grotesque? And I said, me personally, what are we? Because then everybody was trying to get him to sit down. And I was like, no, 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 we're going to go deep on this. I said, you stand right there and explain what you mean. Oh my God, was your heart pounding? No, because I was like, what the fuck? Like, what? What are we talking about? And I said, you need to explain what you meant. Because I had a feeling I knew but I was going to make him say it. I was going to like explain it for him. I said, are you talking about myself? He's like, oh, these women you play, these women. I said, are they aggressive? And he's like, yeah, they're all, they're, they're aggressive and you don't wear makeup and your hair looks crazy. And I was like, okay, keep going. And people were like, sit down. I was like, no, 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 let him keep going. I was like, so because I wasn't made up to be pretty, you're asking me why I'm grotesque. And I said, have you ever asked a male actor? And I said, my character is not together. My character is falling apart and she's not thinking about her hair and her makeup. And she swears and she tells people to fuck off. I said, that's the character. I said, would you go to John C. Riley? Would you go to any actor that didn't happen to look dashing and wasn't charming? And would you say they're grotesque? And he goes, fine, fine, aggressive, overly confident. And I said, so that's what it is. You find an overly confident character in a woman grotesque. And I said, first of all, they're not overly confident. The reason they're so boisterous is because they're insecure. I said, that's the whole point of the character. And I mean, to say it in front of, and he was supposed to be a reviewer. Was he humbled, Melissa? Like, did he absorb it? No. Oh, no. He was just like, oh, my God, fine. What do you want me to say? Aggressive? And I'm like, no, I just wanted to make sure I knew what you were saying, that you find non-complacent women grotesque. So thank you for that. And then later he stood next to me and was like, can I have a picture? And will you hold the magazine I work for? Oh, my God. And I said, you betcha. No, I love it. (laughs) That's the best use of you betcha. I kind of held him. (laughs) I kind of held him a little too long. And he started to go and I was like, yeah. He said, great talk today. That is so delicious. It was really something. You betcha. You betcha. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Okay, what is a dream you've let go of? Getting taller. I think I've let that one go. (laughs) I don't know. I'm kind of unreasonable in that way. I like that. I guess I always think even with silly things, it's like, I think, I don't know. I think Ben and I are going to be pretty fun in our 80s. Like, I can't say what anything I won't do. I think I'm so much more like at this age, I don't worry about stuff. So I'm just, it's not like I want to let go of anything. I'm always like, I don't know. Maybe at 90, I'll like move to Paris and start (laughs) chain smoking or something. I wanted to ask you, I am a virgin when it comes to any awards. (laughs) (laughs) What is it like when you get the phone call and then those months I imagine, I like to imagine because I'm not a part of it, that it's totally hellacious. Like you're getting fitted for shit and you have to schmooze with people, remember names. I don't know. The workload that goes with it is very surprising. It's very surprising because at a certain point you're just like, if, you know, the 25, hell, the 35-year-old version of myself would have been like, shut up and take it. But there is kind of a pack mentality that you're going to so many things and you're seeing the same group of people. But by the end, you're just like, how you doing, Meryl? How's it going? (laughs) I like the fact of seeing everybody as they're all done up for these things. I love that everybody gets more and more grizzled. Yeah. As it goes, and not meaner, not ruder, but just like wave to somebody and then they're like, I can't. <laughs> the inside version of that really tickles me because I just always think people are so much more 
you know, you just see somebody walk past you and they're like, I remember meeting Angelina Jolie and I could barely concentrate. I was just like, I'll never have that. Whatever. She was just talking and being so nice. And I was like, oh my God. I said, you have to repeat yourself. I said, I was so visually distracted (laughs) that I don't know what you said to me. And I'm so sorry. I don't mean to like objectify you. I just up close, holy shit, look at you. And she laughed, but it's like, I like getting to see people that I think are so kind of beguiling be just like anyone else. I think that's something I found really fun and not in a negative way, just like, oh my God, okay, we're all doing this weird job. It's nice to know that for the most part, everybody's just a big weirdo. Yeah. (laughs) And everybody's like tired and their feet hurt and everybody for the most part gets along. Like I've always liked, you know, what's behind the curtain as opposed to what's in front of it. So it's a thing. I remember Amy Poehler told me she was nominated, I think, eight times for an Emmy. She said that every time she would tell herself she's not going to win, she's not going to win. But as the names are being called, she felt the hope, like, rise up every time. Like, she just couldn't physically help it. And that has stuck with me. Because I know I would fall into the same trap as much as, you know, I can be very dismissing of the awards because I haven't won or been nominated for shit. So, of course, I can. (laughs) But I know that I would be seduced. (laughs) I know I would. There's human nature to that, though. Of course, you have in that second, you're like, oh, my God, we worked so hard on that. Wouldn't it be great if... I remember the first time I was like, Octavia is going to win. And then she did. And it was, I don't know. I mean, we've been friends for 25 years, so I was so happy for her. But I mean, I have the same thing, but in different things. Like, even though I know if, let's say I'm supposed to run across a field with six other actors, and at the top, I'm a 50-year-old woman. I know exactly where I'm going to fall on that foot race. And yet I'm like, what if out of nowhere... I kind of kill it. And like, maybe I've got a shot at this. And then, you know, three steps into it, I'm like, oh, wow, ow, 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 ow. Like, I'm, I'm the last one by far. But I'm like, two seconds ago, I was looking at people like, man, wouldn't that be something if I beat him? I don't know if that means we're all delusional or maybe we're optimists. Maybe that's it. Melissa, I look back on hosting Saturday Night Live with kind of only this thought that it took 10 years off of my life, I'm convinced. (laughs) Do you have similar feelings? Did you hate it? No. Or it was just, it's so intense. So intense and surreal. And I did not feel prepared in any way for any, (laughs) like even riding in the elevator. Like all of it was, it was just. I don't think you can be prepared for that show. Okay, good. I think from doing like so much stage stuff, it felt like preview week at the Groundlings, which is, you know, an improv group where I started and I met Ben there. It's just like, nobody knows their lines. You've just written it that afternoon and there's an audience out there and you have half your costume on. Best of luck. (laughs) Some things are going to suck. Some things are going to be okay. I couldn't get over the speed of things. Like I've done things at SNL Mm -hmm. and they're so unfazed by it. I remember there was something where I was supposed to like get a pie in the face. I was a contestant on a game show. Yes. Yes. I love that sketch. It's so brilliant. (laughs) But they're like, oh, the whipped cream isn't holding up. So we're going to use shaving cream. And I'm like, cool. Great. (laughs) End of the scene. I've ingested about a cup and a half of shaving cream. I have three minutes to get fully out of this wig, this costume into something else that had some prosthetics. You're also so exposed. You're standing in a hallway as four different people rip clothes off of you, take a wig off, and I start throwing up because I've eaten all of this shaving cream. 
So I'm literally like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Because I feel terrible. Out of nowhere, somebody shoves a cup under my mouth and they're just like, just go ahead and throw up. Nobody cares. Just keep your arms up so they could keep dressing me. (laughs) So I'd throw up and I'd apologize. And they're like, we don't care. And the thing is, they really didn't. They were like, we've seen much worse. And I was like, in my life, I never thought I would be in a room full of people, fully vertical, throwing up shaving cream and just having a perfect stranger catch it and just be like, it's no big deal. Can you turn (laughs) over so we can like get your wig on? And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. I'm gripped with anxiety as you're telling that story. Oh, my God. Having said that, I remember standing behind that door and being one of the loneliest moments in my life. It's very surreal because I watched it. Did you watch it religiously growing up? I was familiar with the older stuff, but then when I hosted, I felt guilty because I hadn't been watching it for a few years. Like I wasn't up to speed. It goes in cycles. That show more than anything else has such cycles to it. I mean, I watched way, way back, like through the 70s and 80s, and I just couldn't believe when I first walked onto that stage. Also, when you realize the stage is like the size of a small bathroom almost, you think it's going to be this, but I'm like, oh, it's New York. You know, everything's small. When we first were cutting through, we like came from the hallway, cutting through to something else. And I saw all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is it. Like nobody said anything. And all of a sudden I just realized we were standing there on like day one. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the stage. And I like burst out crying. And Lindsay Strickas, who runs it, was like, sorry, I should introduce it more. I just, I'm so used to walking through here. I just froze. I was like, I can't believe I'm standing here. It was just terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Melissa, do you believe in ghosts or aliens? I do. I believe in both. I don't know if I was supposed to pick one, but I've felt a ghost before. And I just don't think that we can be alone. I really don't. I don't know what exactly that means, but I just don't think in the entire universe, it's just us. I agree. To say that we're like the top of it all, I'm like, ah, have you seen Florida? (laughs) I mean, it's just like, (laughs) I always think like clearly there's so many people that know so much more. And I don't know if it's because they think people would freak out with aliens, but I just think there's too many stories of like, there are people that know and I would just be so fascinated. I think everyone would feel better, not more scared. And also at this point in time, maybe if we knew there was other people, we'd be a little more embarrassed of how we're acting and we would kind of buck up. I love the idea that it would be an exercise in humility. (laughs) That would be incredible. We need a higher being to just shame us into acting better. I think it's a sad truth. Well, I did want to ask you about your relationship with the idea of patriotism. Well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I know. You know, it's an interesting thing now because, you know, I am a liberal. I think what that means has been morphed and taken away from us. Just like I think the word Republican. Or feminist. Or feminist, which is like feminist does not mean you hate men. Republican shouldn't mean that you're fascist. And a Democrat shouldn't mean that like anything goes and we're out to kill the country. I love the United States. I think it's riddled with anger and fear, and I think we're ripping each other apart for it. And I hope we can get on the other side of that because I want to go back to being proud of who we are. And it's been weird these last four years, like, you know, traveling 
it was always like, I wouldn't even bring up where I was from. I've never had that happen. I don't hate the U.S. Right now, though, I think we're in such dire straits of losing our humanity that it worries me. So I'm hopeful to be able to be proud of it. I think there's a lot of amazing people in our country, and I think there's a lot of really lost people that are so angry. And I don't even know if they know what they're angry about. But when you become so unhappy in your own life, you have to blame someone. And I think we're watching the, I don't know if it's the disintegration of the middle class that so many people are losing the ability to hope for, hey, maybe I could get a better job. Maybe I could be happier. Maybe I could find a different life. And I think instead of kind of looking at the mirror and saying, how can I do that? How can I work harder and achieve whatever the goal is? They're going, it's that person's fault, or it's that country's fault, or it's the wall, it's the this. And I'm like, I don't think we can get back on track until everybody's like, yeah, the problem's most likely in the mirror. And I root for those people. Yeah. It's been a perfect storm in terms of social isolation, not just with COVID, but the years before then with our social media and the idea of relative anonymity. My dad always thought that people would be much better drivers if you had to have your name plastered all over your car. I totally agree. I think so, too. And the same idea could be expanded, I think, with the idea of social media. Even if your identity is known, it's still easier, I think, to nurture what you may believe is a little bit irrational on some level or to cultivate that idea when you have this collective of kind of unknown Do I make sense, Melissa? You totally make sense because somebody who's like, I hope you die in your sleep at 3.30 a.m. from wherever, Columbus, Ohio, or who knows. That's a different thing than if you had to walk up to someone and say something so hateful and be like, why? Like, are you okay? Like, why are you so hateful towards us? It's too easy now for people to like throw something hateful and take no responsibility. And I'm like, you can say whatever you want to whoever, but I wish that there was a thing with social media that even if it didn't have to go publicly, if somehow like when Facebook's like, well, there's no way to track. I'm like, that's bullshit. You listen to what we're saying. You can track everybody. And if somebody is saying something threatening or on the verge of kind of a violent threat, the fact that we can't go find them, make sure that they're not going to hurt themselves or somebody else, it's a crazy thing because you wouldn't, I mean, some people would, but I think most people, the, the false bravery in hiding has become commonplace and that scares me. I completely agree. I want to ask you what a trait you dislike in others, but I also feel like we're <laughs> piggybacking it on like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably everybody I just said. I strongly, strongly dislike, I'll say it in a gentler way, the lack of kindness sounds maybe too simple, but I think it's so easy to be kind. And so many people are not sharing any of it. And they're just digging in with being like mean and hateful and scary. I feel bad for those people. And I also wish they would knock it off or they were somehow held accountable. I know. Okay. On what occasion do you lie? can't say specifics. There are sometimes certain gifts from certain people. It's usually always the one when it's like, I saw this and I thought, I know exactly who this is for. And I remember I had, I think I was like 21 living in New York City with a bunch of credit cards. I had somewhere between nine and $11 to my name, but I had discovered like, oh, you can just go to get credit cards. I was like, I was an idiot. And so I was like very much living. I like looked like I lived in New York. I was really like, like the girl from the farm was suddenly in New York City. And I was like, I'm doing it. I just put myself into intense debt. 
And I came home and somehow at this point in my life where I was like, guys, I'm living in Manhattan. And I had a very sweet aunt give me like a really oversized shirt with like a knockoff Tweety Bird on it. So it was like a Tweety Bird adjacent character (laughs) that was just different enough for him to look very strange and clearly off brand. And I just remember her being like, I saw this and I just thought, this is Missy. And I was like, what the fuck about an off brand Tweety Bird said me? (laughs) Like, what? So anytime somebody does that, usually that's the premise when it's like, is it? That's the, okay. And then I always am like, I never would have gotten it for myself. I'm so glad you did. I worked with an actress. I sort of walked on eggshells around her a little bit. Just like tentative. (laughs) She made me tentative. And one day she said, you and I are the exact same person. Had no idea what to make of that. It's an extension of that sentiment, though, of like, I know you. And you have this feeling of like, I'm not sure you do. (laughs) Did you try to have her explain like in what way? Or were you like, cool? No. The tentativeness did not bleed into curiosity in any way. It was like, (laughs) just have to be wary of this person. Oh my God. Melissa, does it annoy you when journalists say things like, what makes you and Ben laugh? (laughs) And I guess, does it annoy you that I brought that up? No, it does not annoy me. I think I'm just glad that they've stopped trying to get us to talk about how much we can't stand each other. Like, what do you mean? Like, what did you guys fight about? Oh, my God. When we first did Tammy, every single question was like, oh, my God, how terrible was it living together and then working together, being together 24 hours a day? And we're like, it's the greatest thing we've ever done. It was a blast. And they're like... Okay, so who's the more aggressive? And and I'm like, no, like, this is how we met. We met writing and performing. So this is like a fever dream. It's great. And they're like, okay, so who gets more angry? Oh, no. This has gone on for years. So like, literally like six years in, Ben, I'm like, I don't hate him. I just don't. I'm sorry I don't hate him. And finally, they've stopped asking. It's like, who wears the pants? I'm like, we both wear pants. We both wear pants. I can't say it anymore. So I'll take that over how much do we hate each other? And then I always felt bad. I'm like, do you hate your partner? I'm like, that's kind of what it's leading into. And Melissa, this is probably well-worn territory for you, but can you tell us a bit about Bridesmaids? Everything you do is so fucking brilliant. Oh my God. But probably like (laughs) most Americans, Bridesmaids was when I became aware of how brilliant you are. Will you tell me a little bit about the level of improv or even being a part of that movie? You know what? That was, we knew how much fun we were having. And I just remember thinking, well, Kristen and Annie wrote it. And they're two of the funniest humans I knew. And we all knew each other forever from the Groundlings. Rose was new, but everybody else, like we had all been around each other. So it kind of felt like we were doing another, like, you know, we'll put on a show. And we're like, I don't know if anyone's going to see this thing, but I just don't know how you can watch Maya do anything and not be like, she's just the funniest creature I've ever met in my life. And doing it and having like Paul Feig and every single step of the way, you were so encouraged to like do and say and whatever you think your character would say. Paul would just be like, do more, say more stuff. I'm like, I haven't said any of the lines yet. And he's like, just keep talking. Like he was such a cheerleader. And I mean, and Kristen and Annie being the writers of that, they're such good people and they're so funny. 
the real kick was everybody was always, if we were goofing around and doing like stupid bits on set, the main thing during scenes where people were just trying to like tee up somebody to go into one of the bits we were just doing. Nobody was like, I need my time or this is my moment. Everyone was literally trying to be like, can we get Maya to do the weird thing she was just doing while we were waiting around? (laughs) How generous. I'm so envious. It was one of the most incredibly fun, supportive, happy, loving. I mean, I can't say enough about it. It's so funny to me that even if nobody sees it, who cares? We all got to make a movie together as friends and like, look what we did. And then there was the weirdest thing, the weekend it was coming out, you know how they do all those projections and stuff that I never understand. They were like, oh, everybody should be prepared. It's not going to do very well. It's not going to do well. And I was like, I don't think that's true. And they're like, it's not going to do well. There's a form that we follow. It's not going to do well. I'm like, do you think people will see it and maybe say like, oh my God, there's some really funny things in it. They just kept saying, brace yourself. And then, of course, it did so well, which was shocking. But it was like, I have nothing but, oh, God, I have so many stupid pictures of like us behind. I was like the last one to kind of figure out like the aging app because I'm so technologically challenged. And there was this, like when we're all out on the water at the ending scene when Wilson Phillips comes out. It's so great. We were all on those pods. So we really were in water and you couldn't get off. And we were laughing so hard. Oh my God. That I realized I was like, we're all going to wet our pants. Like people kept crying because we were laughing so hard that people were like, I can't get to you to do your makeup. Stop crying. Stop making each other laugh. And we're like, <laughs> but then you're standing there with Maya and Rose and Kristen and Wendy. And, and just- Wilson Phillips. <laughs> and then Wilson and Phillips, it's like you could tell they were just like, we wrote it. We didn't think that we'd actually be shooting it. And like out came Wilson Phillips. And I'm like, holy shit, it's all happening. Oh, my God. Okay. What talent or ability would you most like to have? Something musical. Like what? I'd love to play the cello. Really? I, I bought one back in April. <gasps> you did? I'm going to learn an instrument. So I bought a cello on Amazon. It's in the bathroom. <laughs> I don't do anything with it. Have you played it at all? I mean, I stuck it between my legs once and, you know, (laughs) sawed away at it. But I love the theatrics of a cello, right? And the bass. I mean, just the sound of it. And I'm like, yeah, when people sit down and they're just like, you know, just start playing away and you don't know that they have that, like. I just finished something here. uh, Jonathan Levine was our lovely director, who's a great guy. And we were up in a random room and he just sat down and just started playing the piano. And I'm like, for me, it doesn't play any instruments. I'm like, it's like I suddenly realized like, you're a wizard. (laughs) Like it just doesn't compute. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me? He's like, when would I have mentioned, by the way, I play the piano. And I'm like, I would. It's like (gasps) when someone speak a different language, I always feel like, God, I'm this age and I can still just like butcher through some Spanish. I'm like, I'm so lame. I feel the same way. And my brain is disintegrating. So I have no <laughs> choice. Okay. I wanted to ask you, where or when are you happiest? I think at like the end of the day when like all the stuff is done and it's just Ben and me and like a scotch and the kids and it's mayhem and there's weird bits happening and I know where everybody is. I know where the kids and the dogs and yeah. I know where everybody is and it's just like, there's nothing productive to do. Uh huh. I just feel like, oh my God, this is everything. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Do you have collections of anything? What do you collect? Oh, God. I collect portraits, which Ben has a lot of trouble with. He does not like them. Melissa, wait, I don't know what you mean when you say portraits. Like oil paintings of people that I've never met. If I'm in any kind of like a vintage or antique store or thrift store and there's a portrait, I feel compelled because I'm like, that's someone's family member. Why does no one in the family have it? I guess I have to take them. And I also think maybe it's because why I love characters so much, because then I'm like, who's this guy? Like, look at him all dressed up in like 1952. And I'm so fascinated with them. Ben's always like, they creep me out. And I'm like, I can't stop buying them. That's amazing. What do you collect? Do you collect anything weird? I have some skeletons. I have a lot of dead bugs and insects around the house. I have sure. that kind of like faux hipstery thing, I guess. <laughs> but I like to think that it gives me like a comfortable cushion with my sense of mortality. Sure, sure. <laughs> if I'm yeah. surrounded by it and it's inevitable. I don't know. Then I'll be fine with it. Yeah, yeah I go down a lot of weird wormholes. It's like usually Etsy related. It's usually like two in the morning. But all of a sudden I'll be like, oh my God, like look at these weird like sculptures of heads. Like all of a sudden there'll be like 15 in my cart. And ben- you will buy them. Yeah. And then Ben's <laughs> like, hey, it's the third random bus that showed up. I'm like, aren't they great? And he's like, it's a lot of them, honey. It's a lot. And I tend to do collections. Like if I start to get one thing, I'm like, oh, we should do like six on a wall. And he's like, or one or one. I'm with you though. I love miniature things. I love a diorama. I love a diorama. Yeah. Like, strangely, I love a diorama. Melissa, when you and Ben are developing a project, do you start with a character you want to play? It depends. It always kind of morphs into it. It's like, it's never quite the same way. And like, Michelle Darnell, I'd done at Groundlings, and I just loved her. I was like, I'd love to, like, tell a bigger story for her. A lot of times, like, sometimes we'll think of it together. Sometimes Ben, I mean, for Tammy, he just came down in the morning. I was, like, sitting there having coffee. He's like, I had a dream where you go on a road trip with your alcoholic grandmother. (laughs) So I think it's a movie. And I was like, okay, you want to have coffee or you want to go write it? And then, like, he did. He just sat down and, like, wrote it all. 
And then as we go through it and he'll give me pages to read, I start to like put in her dialogue and usually I kind of know who she is pretty quickly, but it comes all different ways. I always start with a wig though. Once I have the script, I go to Wilshire wig and just really spend a couple hours trying on wigs. That usually keys it all off. And then like, we'll have a better wig made, but I'm like, I have to kind of find her visually. This will sound stupid, but I know what she's like. I know her attitude. I don't usually know how she sounds like literally Uh until I see her on my head. Because there's something about like a tight curly wig, you're going to sound different from like a mullet. Yeah. I've done this with Paul Feig. I do it with Ben. There's always just lots of pictures of me at that little tiny Wilshire wig, like in the valley. And every time I do a movie, it's just a bunch of weird pictures of me in different wigs. And then I'm like, I think I just met her. I love that idea so much. I get a little obsessive with shoes for a character. Oh, really? That makes sense, though. Does this person feel taller in life or shorter or, you know, like the posturing idea, I guess? Yeah. It's funny how there's always a different way in. I love to hear how other people, like we were talking about this with Octavia Spencer. She's like, oh, I write their memories. And I was like, what? What does that mean? She goes, well, to know who they are, it helps if I know where they've come from. So I write the character's memories in a book. It'll never come up. But if I know this happened when she was six or this happened when she was 12, it colors how she interprets life now. And I was like, well, that sounds a lot more interesting than I go to a wig shop and try on wigs. (laughs) And she's, you know, just laugh. But I was like, I thought that was so fascinating. That's beautiful. I love that. I know. I remember Keenan Wayans had us do these big character biographies for Scary Movie, which it was awesome. I love doing that kind of stuff. But it also felt like Cindy Campbell is so one dimensional. (laughs) She has no backstory. (laughs) She just gets fucking hit in the head. Do you still have it? No, I wish I did. That was a scary experience. It was my first big movie and I was convinced I was going to get fired. I always feel like I'm going to get fired. First day, I'm always like, guys, you're going to love the woman who comes in and replaces me. So bear with me. I just am always like, I'm sure I'm out of here in like four hours. That first day feeling when it's like, yeah, it's like you're at a new school and you don't know anybody and you're like, uh, the hand thing always comes the first day. I'm like, everybody's making fun of me because I, I was so excited to work with Michael Shannon But I was so nervous because I think he's so great and I'm just awkward at first. And he came up and we were talking and I've never done this in my life. All of a sudden, I literally was like, all my energy was going to like, just pay attention to what he's saying. And I literally didn't know where to put my hands. And so at one point, I just very awkwardly put them on top of my head. (laughs) Something I would never do. I couldn't pull it off. I just sat there and it wasn't even like casual. Like I was just awkwardly (laughs) like hands flexed and like all the people that are always with me and know me literally were laughing so hard and they were like, what was with your stance? I'm like, I just got real distracted and I didn't know what to do with my hands. So I had to place them somewhere and I didn't have pockets which is like, if you want to just completely melt my brain down, don't allow me to have pockets because I don't know where to put my hands. And so I guess just awkwardly resting them flexed on my head was what I came up with. I wish our listeners could see the pose because it does feel reminiscent of like a preschool play. (laughs) It's not natural. There's nothing conversational about it. But it is really fucking funny. (laughs) In a super sad way. Oh, God. Do you have a favorite book or author? I really, really love The Memory of Running. 
I loved it. I don't know that book. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. Oh, God, why am I forgetting his name? He's an incredible character actor who's just passed away last year, wrote it, and it's just beautiful. The Memory of Running. The Memory of Running. It's a beautiful story. We wanted to make it into a movie, and it just never... It's a big one to kind of show on a responsible budget, so... Maybe that's the dream. I still want to make that movie. Ron McClarty? Yes, Ron. Yeah, he was a great actor and a beautiful writer. I'm ordering it right now. Do you enjoy solitude? I do. I like solitude if everybody's like two rooms over. When I know the chaos is still close, I'm like, ooh, nobody knows I'm in here. Am I going to get to read for like a half an hour or like troll Etsy, which is more likely. But if everybody's gone, I kind of pace around and wonder when they're getting back. So it's a false solitude that I like. When I was talking to Regina and told her how excited I was to be talking to you, she was singing your praises. She loves you so much. And she also said at least three times what an amazing mother you are. And I guess what surprised me about motherhood maybe is how much I've enjoyed it. I can't imagine having kids and ever being the same person you were in a billion different ways. You're instantly incredibly important to someone and completely in the consequential because your kids don't really give a shit about you. At the same time, you're everything to them. So right away, it's a head twister. Maybe it's age too, but for me, I think it's having kids. What I worried about before kids... Like the things that I was like, oh, you know, what am I going to wear tonight? Like, who, what if so-and-so is there? Like the stupid things I thought of. And now it's just like, I know where they both are. They're doing great. They're completely weird, funny, independent. Like these young creature ladies that I live with are constantly surprising me. It's a constant fear of like, like when you're 30, you'll be like, oh, well, I'm still dealing with that because my mom was, <laughs> I don't know. I think we're all narcissists. We start out, you know, as kids are. They only can want what they want. Even in your 20s, you're not just self-serving. And I think you should be, but you're not responsible for anything. So you can just be like, the most important thing is like, where are we going? When are we going out? What am I going to wear? It's all like fluff and very fun. And then you have kids and you just kind of, it made me feel like I reassessed my entire life in a good way. I just can't get over how funny and strange my kids are. That's amazing. (laughs) Melissa, what was your first boss like? My first official job was my mom worked for these two women that ran like a world book encyclopedia company out of their apartment in Plainfield, Illinois. They had apartments, but they had a cool thing on like, there's a little two block main street and they lived in like an apartment above the shop, which was like, I thought that felt like a big city, even though it was like a hundred year old building. And Norma and Betty... Oh my God. They had one of their aunts with her, Aunt Hilda. And I was probably in fourth grade. And every day after school, I would come and I would be a caretaker for Aunt Hilda, who was like 98. And I would be her companion. Like Rebecca. (laughs) You were a paid companion. Yes, I was a paid companion. And I just loved it because I lived with my great grandma or she lived with us. And I just loved it. I mean, I thought the stories... As a fourth grader, I was like, just keep them coming, lady. I'll make you ham sandwiches all day. And I just hung out with her. And then my first like official job at 16, I worked in a nursing home. So there was like a pattern of- I worked in a nursing home as well. You did? Yes, I was part of the dinner staff. They had like a restaurant with two options. Yes, that's what I did too. You did, yeah. Yes. I got 5.25 an hour. There was a Christmas bonus, but I didn't hang in there for that long. 
That's where I had my first, there was a woman named Helen. I'd say she was probably 89. I was a sophomore or junior in high school. And it was a nursing home next to the high school I went to. And it was half for nuns and half for lay people. And I was in the lay restaurant or the dining room. And Helen, I was fascinated with her because she would dress for dinner every night. And she would talk to me just as another, I guess she treated me like an adult. She just never acknowledged that I was like 16. We became friends. She was the first person that was like, would you like to have a cocktail with me before dinner one night? And I was like, yeah, Helen, I sure as should do. Because she always talked about she had a martini every night before dinner. And I was like, my parents don't really drink. Like, I was like, a martini? Like, in Manhattan, here I come. It felt very like yeah. for being in this like rural little town. I got there and she very sweetly was like, oh, I know you kids like your beer. And I was like, oh, (gasps) oh no. I know. I was like, I wanted a martini. I'd never had one. You know, she had her martini and I had a beer and we just had like a lovely conversation. And I love that at 89, she was like, you know, perfectly fine. Would you like a cocktail? I'm like, I am 16, Helen. Yes. (laughs) And then I went and worked in the dining room that night and she came in. But like, I kind of cherished that we had this like, it was my first like grown up like cocktail with someone. I love that. I love that, Melissa. (laughs) Did you admire it that she dressed up every night or did you find it a little bit? I liked it because I could tell she enjoyed it. And it wasn't in an overly fussy way. I mean, I think she put like a dot of lipstick on, but she always came in and she kind of shuffled and she'd have like a little matching like jacket and skirt and then a blouse. And, you know, I was like, oh, it's, you know, and I'd comment on it and you could just tell that she enjoyed it. It wasn't to be flashy. It was really because she's like, I put it on because I wanted to. Uh huh. So it made me think she was like pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love her style. Yeah. Okay. Here are two questions that have the same theme. What would your younger self not believe about your life today? And what advice would you give your younger self? I think my younger self would be shocked that I'm doing the job I'm doing. Do you think? I think so, because I don't think I thought I was going into like the acting world of it. I think I thought I wouldn't be able to generate it. I remember the first time I saw Carol Burnett, I remember being very like aware that she was not only on it, it seemed very different to me. Same with like all the great women on SNL. I was like, they're not just actors, they're generating it. Like Carol Burnett is generating her show. Somehow that like took a hold of me. And so I knew whatever I wanted to do, I was like, I want to be the one who generates it because I like the process of the creation, not just the final result. Oh my God, I think if I could give myself advice... I would try desperately to not worry about all the bullshit, the worrying about how I looked or, which is really funny. I think I was hardest on myself when I was in great shape in my 20s. I remember always being like, which is really funny because I worried about my weight then, you know, it was like, wait for it. You're really going to have something to worry about later. But I worried about it so much when there was nothing to worry about, which just goes to show you that as women, especially young women, we have such completely distorted ability to view ourselves. I spent so much time, and I don't think I was like crazier than anyone else, but I just think about it now and I'm like, I could have been doing so many other things. Every hour I spent worrying about that kind of bullshit, if I strung them all out, like how much time did I waste? And now I'm just like, I'm up. I'm able to take myself across a room. I'm doing great. I could give two shits. If somebody's like, I wish you looked more like this, I'd be like, well, wonderful for you. I don't care at all. 
The 20s were like a time of, yeah, fun and misery. Yeah. And I was consumed by jealousy that I couldn't suppress very well and competitiveness. But I imagine the Groundlings was joyful but intense. Did you have those times when you were second guessing? I dropped out of my drama program at the college I went to because I didn't think it was going to happen for me. And I didn't want my heart to be broken in Los Angeles. It worked out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd started doing production out here in New York. It was like our gang. I was always like, I'm putting out a play. I'm going to get three other people. If we all invite 15 people, then we've got this. And we're was always in like the cheapest place, but I was always doing it. And then when I started doing production, I was a PA was my first time really doing anything on set. And I remember thinking I was getting closer and closer to 30. I came down to a real decision where I was like, because I just didn't, I wasn't making any money. I wasn't getting any acting work at all, but I spent, you know, 60 hours a week working on things for the groundlings. And I had told myself, I don't know if I would have gone through with it, but I was pretty close to meaning it. I said, if 30 comes and I still have not had a regular acting job, I'm going to switch to production and switch to the producing side of it. Because I had been a production manager for someone who I really liked. And she was like, why don't you come work for me? And I was like, I have to give it to the rest of the year because I was 29 at the time. And I was like, I'm not quite there yet, but if I hit 30, can I come back and see you? And she said, yes. And then like two weeks before my 30th birthday, I got Gilmore. That's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, before I let you go, I wanted to talk to you about Super Intelligence. I loved the movie. Oh, thanks. I love you and Bobby Cannavale. He's the greatest. I imagine. I've never met him. He's one of the funniest people on the planet. And he's also just like the greatest guy. He's just a tremendous fella. It seems like it. The scene in the grocery store. I love your flirtation and your relationship and the way you both play it. There's that wonderful moment where he sort of refuses your invitation to dinner without explanation. It was just so beautifully done. It's really satisfying how the movie plays out. I thought it was just so beautifully romantic. And the two of you together was just beautiful. Thank you for watching it. I'm glad you liked it. We have a funny thing. We've done four things together now. We fought each other, like literally fisticuffs and spy. And then in Superintelligence, we're an item. And then Thunder Force is coming out. We fight again. Like we're both superheroes. We fight each other. And then I just finished something here, Nine Perfect Strangers with him, where we fall in love again. So we just keep fighting and falling in love fictitiously. That's our pattern. On the scale of one to 10 of characters that you've enjoyed playing, (laughs) where would Carol Peters lie in enjoyment? Or is that unfair? Is that like picking children? It's like picking children for me. I mean, luckily, God, like we'll knock on something. There's a couple that I wouldn't be like, oh, I'd do anything to go back. But there's certain women that I feel like I really fell in love with and I could never rank them. I just kind of collect them and love them all. But It's the joy of getting to play interesting people. Like you get to take them with you. I love that. Do you have a favorite joke, Melissa? I do. Oh, great. What do you call a pile of kittens? I don't know. I'm (laughs) meowing. I love it. I was never good with jokes, but that one truly, like stupidly, the first time I heard it, like I laughed and someone's like, oh, you're actually laughing. I'm like, yeah, it slayed me. (laughs) They were like, God, you're an idiot. (laughs) Oh, I love it. (laughs) Melissa, what do you think is the meaning of life? Oh, God, I wish I knew. I think to get to the end of it and not have regrets, 
I think it all just matters in how you treat people and all of that stuff just stays with you and other people. And no matter what you kind of accomplish at the end, I don't think means anything, but I think at the end of your life, if you don't have any regrets about how you've treated people, kind of an integrity with yourself, I think that's it to go to wherever we go, whatever that is. I think to progress as a spirit or soul or whatever, I think you can only do that if you can look back and be okay with what you leave behind. I love that. And I love you. You're so sweet. And I cannot thank you enough. Truly, Melissa, you have been my dream guest for this whole time. Oh, my God. And I keep looking back at myself. It's like I can't get close (laughs) enough to you. (laughs) Oh, Melissa, thank you. Oh, this is so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. Bye. Bye. Right back at you. Bye-bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Jen Gunter to the podcast. Dr. Jen is an OBGYN, pain medicine physician, and advocate for women's health. She has been called Twitter's resident gynecologist and the vagina whisperer. Okay, maybe I came up with a vagina whisperer, but you'll see why. (laughs) I do need to emphasize that while we hope our conversation is educational and helpful, nothing should be taken as medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue or have a question about a medical issue, please talk to your doctor. Okay, and now Dr. Jen Gunter. Hi, Dr. Jen. Thank you so much for doing this today. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Let's call Liz. Hello. Hi, Liz. How are you? It's Anna. Hi, Anna. I'm so excited. I'm doing great. Well, I can't thank you enough for submitting your email and for talking with us. I'm here with Dr. Jen Gunter. She is an OBGYN, and she has also been called Twitter's resident gynecologist, the Internet's OBGYN, (laughs) and she's wonderful. I love that. Liz, will you tell us what's happening? Yeah. So I've been noticing over the last year or so that I've been having trouble self-lubricating or getting wet. I'm not entirely sure what the exact terminology is for it. I've been with my partner for about five years now, and we have a really healthy sex life. And he's a very generous partner. But I've been finding that this is getting in the way a lot more often to the point where we'll just stop having sex. What I find 
confusing is like, you know, we'll be doing foreplay and it feels good, but I'm not having this physical response with my body. And that's clearly getting in the way of what goes on beyond foreplay. Do you mind my asking how old you are? No, not at all. I'm 27 years old. That seems young. Dr. Jen, will you help us out? Because I assumed that age was related, like menopause or, you know, and I'm 44. So I keep waiting for those days, too, when I'm not as lubed. So definitely lubrication can change with age. So that's certainly one factor. But there can actually be a lot of different things involved. So is it okay if I ask you a couple of questions, Liz? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. So are you taking any medications? Yeah. So I'm on birth control. I take the pill. Okay. And are you on a regular estrogen-containing pill? It's a very low dose of estrogen. Okay. And do you take any other medications, uh, specifically antidepressants, if you feel comfortable answering that? I do not. Okay. So the other thing is when you say that you don't feel wet enough, tell me what the symptom is, like how it actually feels. Again, if you feel comfortable with that. Yeah. So we'll be like fooling around and, you know, I'll feel myself like producing something down there, but then we'll start having like full penetration sex. It'll be going on for a while. And then it just starts to feel kind of like a a little more painful, like, you know, Mm -hmm. to the point where even like my partner, he notices that like, I'm not really enjoying myself as much. And like, I don't want to say it's drying out. So I'm not dry, but it just definitely feels like there's more friction when we start to have penetration sex. So obviously, you know, this isn't direct medical advice and without an exam, you know, I'm missing some things, but so there's a couple of things that could be going on. So sometimes, for example, just lubrication can wax and wane for reasons that we don't understand. But that would be something that we would say would be the the diagnosis we would come to if we rule everything else out. Secondly, if you've been on the pill for a really long time, it's unlikely related to that um, because it sounds like this is a problem that sort of didn't develop within a month or two after starting the pill. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. So the two things that can produce sort of that sensation of kind of like increased friction or discomfort. So one actually is um, yeast can do that. So when people have an overgrowth of yeast in the vagina, they can actually feel dry during sex, even though when we look under the microscope or look vaginally, there actually isn't dryness. The other thing, people can also develop some muscle spasm in the muscles around the vagina and they get a little bit tight. And then what happens is that leads to extra friction during sex that gets to be uncomfortable. And anything that's uncomfortable is going to also affect your ability to lubricate. And because sometimes it can be hard for your brain to sort of sort out during sex, like what's friction, what's lubrication, because all of this stuff is going by the same nerves and you're also sort of in the heat of the moment. Sometimes that can be perceived as dryness. So for someone with your, your history, I would want to evaluate your pelvic floor to make sure those muscles that wrap around the vagina aren't a little bit tight. And that's why you're having that increased friction that's causing the discomfort. And that would be treated with physical therapy. I'd also want to get a yeast culture to make sure that you don't have a higher than expected amount of yeast in the vagina. And that's contributing to a sense of dryness and the friction problem. And I also want to have a look and make sure there's no skin condition in the vagina. But typically when something comes and goes, a skin condition is going to cause problems all of the time. And if all of those things checked out completely normally, then I would say, you know, try a silicone-based lubricant because lubricants that are water-based sometimes can have what's called a high osmolality, and that can lead to irritation of the tissues. 
Dr. Jim, what would cause your pelvic floor muscles to suddenly get really tight? So for me, it's a very common thing. I probably diagnose three or four people a day with it. Sometimes it's one of these complex answers like, why does anything start? Why did one day you have migraines? Why did one day you get low back pain? You know, sometimes it's just the straw that broke the camel's back, medically speaking. But sometimes it can also happen if someone had a run of bladder infections that can irritate those muscles. If you had a yeast infection that made you itchy, you know, whenever anything hurts, it's natural for those muscles to actually clench and protect yourself. If you think about if you hurt your back, you know, you kind of tighten up to protect that area. And so often this a trigger for this could even have been a yeast infection. You had a bad yeast infection. You had some itching. Or just for one episode of sex, you did have a momentary period where you just weren't lubricating enough that was uncomfortable, and that kind of triggered that cycle of spasm. How do you do physical therapy on your pelvic floor? So we actually have amazing specialized physical therapists all around the world that are pelvic health physical therapists, and they work vaginally. What they do is they assess um, the tightness of those muscles. You know, those are the muscles that you squeeze if you do a Kegel, you know, if you're kind of contracting your pelvic floor. You know, they're the muscles that also contract when you have an orgasm. So those kind of like that pumping sensation, that's the levator ani muscles contracting. So physical therapists work on those muscles. Strengthening those muscles can be really important for people who have incontinence. And when those muscles get too tight, they can cause pain. And so working on them to make sure that they're relaxing appropriately can be therapy for pain with sex and pelvic pain. So a lot of the times my partner will actually like make sure I come to orgasm before we do penetration sex. Is that Does that have any correlation with any of the pain that I'm feeling? It's actually unlikely. So usually, and that means that you've, you've got a wonderfully responsive partner because, you know, we always like to say, <laughs> you know, ladies first. And so definitely that can actually relax the pelvic floor for a lot of women. Some women have pain with sex because they don't get adequate foreplay. So that sounds like it's not an issue for you. And whenever we're talking about sexual difficulties, we also want to make sure technique is right. But, you know, this can just happen. And sometimes it's the friction that triggers the muscles to have the spasm. So getting your pelvic floor checked out would be something to think about, you know, getting checked for yeast and and also maybe trying a silicone-based lubricant. I was under the impression that silicone-based lubes also can trap bacteria pretty easily. No, that's a myth. Uh, Lubes don't trap bacteria. You know, so silicone is generally the least irritating. And so because it doesn't have to have a preservative in it, you know, and there's no like organic silicone, you don't have to know your silicone farmer. So, you know, whatever you, you know, just a plain silicone lubricant is great. But, you know, some people don't like the feel of it. You know, different lubes have different slip factors and we're all tactile in different ways. That's why some people prefer the water-based lubricants. But you do have to be really careful with those because as I mentioned, if you have a high osmolality lubricant, what that does is it actually pulls water out of the tissues. And that can lead your tissues to actually feel irritated. And so people can mistake that for thinking that they're getting a vaginal infection from sex where it's actually a side effect of the lubricant. And when the osmolality is really high, that can actually damage the vaginal bacteria in a way that can increase your risk of getting a sexually transmitted infection if exposed. Dr. Jen, I feel like you just cured me because I was under the impression that silicon was worse. So we've been trying water-based and it gave me the most god-awful UTI to the point where I was too scared to even use lubricants. So it seems like we almost need to like go back to try the silicon and maybe that would 
help us both out in the long run. Yeah, I mean, especially so if you had a bad reaction to a water-based lubricant, you tried that out. So maybe you had a little bit of dryness because, you know, like life happens. It's not like anybody's stressed right now, right? Um, And so, you know, something happens, you have a sort of a momentary episode of pain because maybe you're not lubricating well. It triggers a little bit of that muscle spasm. So then you try to compensate and you're like, oh, let me get a water-based lubricant. And then it's like, you get all that irritation and then it just makes it worse. And then you're thinking every time you have sex, oh my gosh, what if I use that lubricant? I might make it worse. And, you know, all those things can have an impact. So, you know, silicone's the easiest one to use because almost no lubricants publish their osmolality or their pH. So it's really hard for me to say, you know, use brand X or use brand Y because they could also change their recipes. So if you use a silicone lube, you kind of take all of that out of the mix. And the irritation from a water-based lubricant can feel like a bladder infection or yeast infection. Or, you know, if you had pain with sex, it could have also, you know, led to a sequence of events that might have increased your risk for a bladder infection. Dr. Jen, for a while I used coconut oil, but it made my balance off. So what do you mean by made your balance off? I, I didn't smell bad, but I smelled different. And then when I stopped, it stopped. Okay. We don't have a lot of data on just using sort of straight oils. There is, you know, a small study looking at olive oil, which didn't find any difference. And that was for, you know, women after menopause. In general, coconut oil seems pretty well tolerated. I have a lot of people who use it. But the way we smell everywhere, head to toe, is generally related to the bacteria in our bodies. And our vaginal bacteria is no different. And so we have colonies of bacteria that are typically lactobacilli, but some people have other ones that produce things that keep our vagina healthy. That also produces how we smell. And so it's possible if you introduce something different for you, for your bacteria, that might cause a change. And if that change is bothersome to you, then go back to what you were doing before. My body reacts to natural, healthy things. <laughs> well, you know, you know, look, nothing, everything natural is eventually bad for you. If you have too much oxygen, it can be bad for you. If you have too much water, it can be bad for you. So, you know, but, you know. I love you, Dr. Jen. <laughs> so say we, we have intercourse and, you know, we use lubricant. How would you recommend that I cleanse myself after we finish having sex? Like, is it safe for that to still be within me or should I do some sort of deeper cleanse afterwards? So you should never clean inside your vagina ever because that will cause problems. So after sex, you don't need to do any kind of special cleaning. I mean, you know, you can have the traditional sex towel on the bedside table if you like to kind of mop up between your legs, Um, you know, or if your partner is caring, they'll, they'll grab the sex towel for you. Yes. Maybe, Anna, we could have one. We could have a line Hell of this house. Yes. I love it. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. So, you know, you don't have to do anything at all medically. Um, if you want to clean between your legs with a towel, that's fine. But there's no washing that's required. And you definitely don't want to clean inside the vagina. Even cleaning internally with water damages the good bacteria. You don't want to reach in and scoop out and try to mechanically remove anything either because that can damage the ecosystem. What are good cleansers to use for the outside, for like the vulva? Yeah, so the vulva, like where your clothes touch your skin, you don't want to use any feminine washes. Those are basically 
garbage, you know, and they're also sold with, you know, tropical smells and stuff. And I'm like, you know, it's a vulva, not a pina colada. Like, (laughs) it doesn't need to smell like a tropical breeze. It shouldn't smell like a tropical breeze. So, you know, I tell people that a gentle facial cleanser, you know, that's unscented because you want to use a cleanser because soap is irritating. When soap interacts with your skin, it can also raise the pH and the vulvar skin uh, is more susceptible to drying out. That's actually one of the functions of pubic hair. It traps moisture there. So especially for people who remove their pubic hair, you're going to have to work a little bit harder to not dry out, you know, the area. So, I mean, if it's okay to mention products, I just use, you know, CeraVe facial cleanser. I use that on my body head to toe. Oh, great. I'm loving this, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I guess just with the idea of like self-lubricating or getting wet, would you say that just like everyone produces something different? Like every once in a while, like I'll feel a little shame the fact that like I couldn't produce more, like show my partner that I was like more turned on than I actually was just because like, I feel like, especially with that Cardi B song coming out, like I just can't relate to that idea. (laughs) You know, I think that's a real reflection and I hear that all the time. So, you know, I want to, I want to endorse that. What you're feeling is something I hear from a lot of women. So it's almost like sex has become metric driven, you know, that if you, you know, how fast did you come? How wet are you? You know, all these things. And it should be pleasure driven. It should be, did you have a good time? You know, that's what matters. You shouldn't have to sort of give a display of that. And I think that, you know, things happen and life happens. And sometimes you're more lubricated than others. And, you know, 65% of women have reported that they've, you know, needed to use a lubricant and there's nothing wrong with that. And so, and sometimes people like to try it because why not try a different sensation? But, you know, and it's also sometimes your brain is ahead of your vagina and you're like, you're raring to go and your vagina just hasn't caught up. So why not use some lube to get you there? And you don't need to have some kind of sort of sexual performance metric to tick off. It's about pleasure, not performance. What happens during ovulating? I know that there's a more viscous discharge, which is such a gross word, isn't it? Discharge. It's beautiful, our bodies. (laughs) Discharge is an evolutionary marvel. I can talk for hours about how amazing discharge is. But yes, during ovulation, you have this special kind of mucus that uh, comes from the cervix. And it's about, you know, obviously helping with pregnancy should it happen. And we call that spinbarket. That was sort of the name that was given to it. And it's, you can actually- wait. I, I might I might be butchering the pronunciation. So let's just say that. But I think it's Spinbarket. So it's a German word. Spinbarket. And, and the mucus is so thick. Like if you put it between your fingers, you could pull it. Yeah. Like that's normal. And I heard, Dr. Jen, I think you touched on this. And I think this is the magical part is that that lube like sucks the sperm up and helps like escort it to the egg. Yeah, I mean, it's all about everything about the reproductive cycle is geared towards making fertilization more likely to happen. So it has absolutely has a role in that. And some people can produce so much ovulatory mucus and other people less. And sometimes some months it's more than others. And that's the way it is. Liz, before you got on, Dr. Jem was telling me something fascinating that the wiping thing that we've all like the mantra we've all like front to back wiping is not as relevant as we think. Really? I feel like that's so ingrained in our brains. I know. At a young age, especially once we like get our period and we become a woman. I want to blow both of your minds here. So you remember how 
cleanliness and purity have been linked with goodness for women, right? So a lot of these kind of cleaning rituals and things have come from that sort of a good woman is a clean and sort of prepped woman. You know, when uh, many of these recommendations came out, in addition to sort of purity culture, you know, there were very few women in in OBGYN to sort of speak up about what actually happens when you go to the bathroom. It's not like you're soiling yourself everywhere. And then, um, you know, then there's the other concept of uh, we now, we didn't know about the microbiome, what we know now. And so things are far more complex and we're learning that overcleaning is actually really bad. I see a lot of skin problems from wipes and overcleaning. You know, I unfortunately see a lot of women who are washing or cleansing their vulvas, you know, four, five, eight, ten times a day. And I don't think about it at all. And I'm an expert in the area. You know, I give a swipe in the shower and that's it. What about urination after sex? Yeah, that's also um, a bit of an old wives tale. There's absolutely no data to support it. It's also been removed from the newest guidelines. So special attention to wiping and voiding after uh, sex have sort of been removed. You know, I mean, a lot of our bathroom purity stuff, this fastidiousness is probably also a remnant from, you know, Victorian era where, again, cleanliness was next to godliness. And, and that has permeated so much of our culture. You know, that's probably a big part of it. Those things don't seem to make a difference. I mean, they're they're not harmful. If you want to pee after sex, you certainly can. But, you know, if you like a little afterplay and you want to cuddle first, that's okay too. Yeah, I always thought that was a bladder infection correlation. Like if there was, you know, a lot of like rubbing or whatever, that peeing after sex was an important part of Yeah, no, it's just hasn't sort of borne out. And, you know, I think we're learning a lot more about bladder infections that it's really far more complex. There's a urinary microbiome, um, you know, bacteria that cause infections often are more adhesive, but it doesn't mean you can flush them out with your pee. If you could flush them out with your pee, you'd be flushing them out all of the time, right? So, you know, this idea that some like critical window of five minutes that is somehow going to allow these bacteria to take hold hasn't been borne out. And so- Dr. Chen, this is incredible. In like 15 minutes, you have completely uh, reoriented my vagina. (laughs) I wish I could get all this time back from my life sitting (laughs) on the toilet and trying to force myself to pee afterwards. Me too. I know. But Dr. Jen, is there anything concrete that we can do to avoid yeast infections or bladder infections? Or is it kind of a little mysterious still? Well, so I would separate those two completely because they're very different, even though, you know, they happen in close proximity. So we don't really have a good understanding why most women get yeast infections. So most women have yeast in their vagina at any given time. If I took 100 women walking down the street and stopped them and did a culture, 20 would have yeast and don't have symptoms. So for a lot of people, it's the overgrowth of the yeast that's normally there. And the reasons that happens, we don't know, but it's not related to eating sugar. That I can tell you. So it's not related to eating bread or gluten. I can tell you those two things for 100% sure. It's probably related to, you know, local issues with the microbiome that we just don't understand. Certainly for some women, uh, exposure to a penis can be a risk factor. Uh, and whether it's the friction of sex that can cause, you know, little microabrasions that can allow the yeast that's normally there to overgrow, whether, you know, exposure to a penis can introduce something called a biofilm, which is something that allows the yeast to kind of avoid your immune system. So there's a lot of complicated things that we just don't really quite understand about that. And so those are kind of the main things. But what I would say is that 
if 100 women think that they have a yeast infection, usually the number that truly do, it's closer to about 30 to 35%. So what happens is many people mistake an external itch for a yeast infection. And a yeast infection typically produces internal symptoms. Oh, boy. This is kind of eye-opening. I mean, I've definitely treated myself like with the -the over-the-counter products in the past. And sometimes I felt like it intensifies, especially like the one or three-day treatment plans. And I just chalked it up for them being extra powerful. Liz, have you experienced any of that too? I have. I like routinely keep these like all natural yeast suppositories in my cupboard because I thought I was experiencing like yeast infections. Oh, oh, wait a sec, Liz. Wait a sec, Liz. We have a cause of your uh, irritation with sex. Those suppositories are not good for you. They're not good for me. No, no. The natural suppositories that, that claim to keep like yeast away that have maybe tea tree oil or lavender, those kinds of things, they could definitely damage your ecosystem and cause irritation. Oh, interesting. I never even thought about that. I don't use them super often, but I don't know. I feel like if I ever have like some sort of like itch or discomfort, you know, those are usually what I turn to because I thought, you know, because they say all natural, it tries to re- balance my pH almost. No, it can't do that at all. In fact, those things are like cigarettes for your vagina that they're really not good for you. Yeah. They're just, I mean, and tobacco is all natural, right? That is true. Yeah. I mean, these companies are preying upon people. So we have these huge gaps in medicine where women are made to feel shame about their normal vaginas. We have doctors that aren't trained maybe in the way that specialists like I am are. And so people get misdiagnosed and they get pushed off. And so I can totally understand how you turn to someone who's offering this kind of all natural product. But those things are are definitely harmful for your vagina. And I would throw them away. I am planning on doing that the second I get home. (laughs) Um, Liz, do you have any more questions for Dr. Jen? I I feel like this has been hugely helpful for me, Liz. I'm so glad you wrote in. <laughs> yeah, this has been incredibly helpful. I feel like you've opened my eyes to a lot of things. I mean, I'm definitely going to pick up some silicon-based lubricant. I'm going to throw away any of my like all-natural suppositories. Um, I just, I feel really happy that I was able to talk about this because like you said, like there's this level of like shame that's put upon us when I can't respond in the way. And I'm very thankful. I have a wonderful partner who's never made me feel shame. It's just very internalized, but I, it seems like I have different things I can try out now and hopefully things will turn around in the end. And I cover all this stuff even in more detail in my book, The Vagina Bible. Which I have upstairs. It's awesome. Oh, I'm definitely getting one of that. Hey, Liz, thank you so much. I so appreciate you talking with us. And I truly do because I learned a lot. (laughs) Thank you. This was wonderful. Please be in touch. And thank you for, for being so open and talking about a problem that millions of women have. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you, Dr. Jen. Thanks, Liz. Have a wonderful rest of your day. All right. Thank you. Dr. Jen, thank you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I cannot wait to talk to you again. Bye, Dr. Jen. Bye. Thank you. 